0: You are listening to the Passion City Church podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Well, howdy, y'all. Y'all doing all right? I'm from Texas, in case you can't tell. Uh, Yeah, of course, the... Church in Houston helped plant this church in D.C. All great things come out of Texas because Texans are so humble. So uh, it really is a pleasure to be here uh, and to see, you know, I think they need an energy boost up here. Uh, I just was looking and going, you know, it's a little drab, they're a little quiet, they're a little too calm, and just, you know, just just dial it up a little. And uh, so it's it's great to be here. Uh, this stage, really, I, I, I looked at the drums and I went. I knew this place was different because if you've ever been in churches around most of the country, I, I speak all around the country. Usually, the drummer is a caged lion. Okay, I don't know if you've been in church, but you know they put this huge plastic—well, it's not plastic, plexiglass or whatever it is—around the drums, and the guy's there in himself in isolation, and he's sitting there banging on the drums. Just let me out of this cage. I wanna thank the church for letting the drummer out of the cage. That's a great great thing. So uh, I am here to help you think about minding the gap. And uh, if you, I'm just curious, this is a pretty sophisticated group, I can tell. How many of you have ever been either to London, England or Sydney, Australia? Put your hands up. That's not bad, not quite half of you, okay? If you, if you do the subway system, you will see, first of all, the British you know, and the Aussies, they've got a little bit of a problem. They drive on the wrong side of the road and that kind of thing. I think it's all done in reaction to the fact that we won the revolution and they wanna mess us up when we visit, okay? And let's be honest, it works. And so you have to be careful when you're traveling and moving from place to place in the city. And as you move from place to place in the city, when you hit the subway, there'll be this little sign that you'll see on a regular basis, mind the gap. Because what they're telling you is there's gonna be a space between the platform and the, and the subway cars. And they don't want you to take a step and have a sudden Gehenna experience where you just go south you know, and end up on the rails. So you gotta pay attention to the gap. I wanna talk to you today about that gap. And I want to think through with you probably something you may have asked about, but you probably haven't thought about. And it's always good to speak on something that someone hasn't thought about because then you get to fill the space. And so I want to talk about the gap that exists in the scripture between the time of the events of Jesus on the one hand and the writing down about those events in gospels on the other. Okay, so we're going to play with a gap here. And the events tied to Jesus are dated somewhere around the 30s in the first century. We call it uh, A.D., Anodani, the year of our Lord. It's interesting, you know, our calendar is built around the idea that Jesus changed everything. And so, so we're in 30 A.D., And the Gospels were written, the first Gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, were written somewhere around the 60s or so. And the Gospel of John goes out to the 90s. So there's a huge gap between the time of the event and the writing down of that material. And some people will say or ask, depending on their perspective, some people are skeptical about what happens in the gap, and other people are... um, just curious about what happens in the gap. And the idea is, how do we know that what we had in AD 30 is at all like what was written down either in the 60s, 30 years later, or in the 90s, 60 years later? That's a lot of space. And a lot of things can happen in the in-between time. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna talk about this gap and I'm gonna talk about three things that are related to this gap. Those three things are orality. In the beginning, there were no books, or at least very few of them. Everything that was communicated and passed on was passed on verbally, you know? Um, you might not believe it, but there was a time when there was not a cell phone or a smartphone, okay? I mean, I, live, I'm, I'm, I look at this audience and I go, I have never felt so old, <laughs> okay? I haven't seen a gray hair yet, okay? And I'm nervous, okay? So I look at this and I, I lived in an age when the phone had a rotary dial. I asked my grandson the other day, do you know what a rotary dial is? He looked at me and thought I had spoken to him in a foreign language. And so, uh, so back in the, you know, obviously in the first century, things were passed on orally. The second thing I'm gonna talk about is memory. Memory, how well do we remember things? From one year to the next? And what happens to memory in a time gap, in a time warp? And the third thing I'm going to talk about is eyewitnesses. Do those eyewitnesses remember things well? And how do you pass that stuff on to other people when the eyewitnesses drop off the scene? So those are the three things I'm going to talk about, but I'm going to talk about them from a particular angle. And the angle that I'm going to talk about them from has to do with the skepticism that comes with this material. So an oral world is not a print world, and it's not a digital world. And in the beginning, you know, I almost feel like I need to put on the CNN voice. In the beginning, there were no books. This is CNN, okay? <laughs> and uh, there was memory, and there was a passing on by word of mouth. And the claim of the tradition of, according to some, was loose like a thing called the memory game. Anyone know what the memory game is? Okay, that's when you tell a story, you line up a group of people and you tell a story and it's got to be long and complicated or else it doesn't work. And as you tell the story, the person who's first told the story, has got to tell it to the second person and the third person and the fourth person on down the line, depending on how many you have. And the point of the game is to see what the story looks like when it gets to the end of the line. Okay, do people remember it well? It's called the memory game with what we call it, sometimes called the telephone game. Okay, that's another era. Okay, I really liked what they call this when you're in Asia and Indonesia and Australia, New Zealand. They have a cool name for it, it's called Chinese Whispers. Okay, that's just a great name for a game, okay? You know, so you whisper it over here and then you whisper it over here and you whisper it. And hopefully what you have at the end is sort of like what you had at the beginning. Of course, the fun of the game is is that the story is so complicated that remembering everything ends up being a mess. And so the story that you get at the end isn't at all like what you had at the start. And some people argue that what's happened in that gap that I'm talking about is, is that the story has changed and that the game has changed from where we were versus where we end up. And so I want to talk about that because there are people, there are even scholars who argue this. Um, people who teach New Testament studies in some of our universities will argue you can't trust that what you got in the Gospels is what you originally had from Jesus. And then there's a second claim that comes alongside me. It goes like this even if there were eyewitnesses, memory is not really trustworthy. Memory leaks. It doesn't hold on to things very well. And it messes things up over time. So you can have eyewitnesses. You can have all the good oral communication you ever want. But memory is so poor that there's no guarantee that what you have down the road fits what you had earlier. So I want to talk about that. And the way some people characterize what we have in the Gospels. Let me give you two quotes. The first is from Bart Ehrman. He teaches at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And every time I read this quote, I say, that's why I root for Duke instead of North Carolina. (laughs) Anyway, here's what Bart Ehrman has to say about, about the Gospels. And he has written the textbook that's probably the most widely distributed in many of our universities. This is what he says. Even the Gospels pose problems for historians, however, Since they are written long after the facts they narrate, that's our gap, by people who had not witnessed the events, he doubts that they actually go back to eyewitnesses. That would be a conversation he and I would have over coffee. Uh, By people who had not witnessed the events they describe and who relied on inconsistent oral and written traditions about Jesus, that inconsistent oral tradition is that telephone game that's going on. In another section of the book, he writes about how the message of Jesus were carried on by all kinds of people in all kinds of directions and all kinds of ways with all kinds of non-oversight. And so it could do anything it wanted. And he argues that it does. The next quote that you see on the slide is from Michael White. Now, Michael White, I'm I'm, I'm non-discriminatory. He teaches at the University of Texas at Austin. That's my home state. He's a professor of classes, uh, of classics there. I heard that hiss, by the way, okay? Uh, and, uh, and he's a professor of classics, and he was an advisor on a major PBS special entitled From Jesus to Christ. It, it appeared back at the turn of the millennium. And he was the main advisor. And this show, which it airs just about annually now on PBS because it's a documentary about the history of early Christianity, um, was seen originally by between 13 to 15 million people. This is what he says about the material that we're talking about. The problem for any historian of Jesus's life is that we don't have sources that come from the time of Jesus himself. Now, that sentence needs to be examined. It's technically correct, but is significantly misleading. Technically, he's right. We don't have anything written that dates to the time when Jesus walked the earth. That's what the gap is all about. But what that remark obscures is the fact that there were tons of people who walked and talked with Jesus who we have material from, which puts us in the memory game and puts us in the gap. So I want to talk about how that works. Now, when we think about orality, there are three ways to think about orality in the ancient world. And you see a name on the slide, Bailey. That's Ken Bailey. He was a missionary to Bedouins in the Middle East for many, many years. In the 1990s, he wrote an article about what he was seeing among these people who were illiterate, who didn't read or write books, who lived in an oral culture. And he made the observation that, and he also was a New Testament guy. So he knew a little bit about what was going on with this orality idea. And he said, there really are three ways to think about orality. The way that I just described from Bart Ehrman, which is it's like the telephone game. It just runs for time and you don't have to worry about it. it. It goes everywhere. That is called informal and uncontrolled orality. That's how he labeled it. It's informal in that Anyone can tell the story and it's uncontrolled because no one is overseeing how that material is passed on. And so it circulates with no oversight and it can go anywhere. And this is where many New Testament scholars started when talking about the material associated with Jesus. People experienced Jesus, they told their stories, they told them in a variety of ways and in a variety of environments. There was no oversight and they went everywhere. And the model for this type of orality was Icelandic folklore, ancient Icelandic folklore. And as a New Testament person, I go, well, that's close, Iceland begins with I. Of course, Jesus was in Israel in a much different time in a much different space. So other scholars pushed back and said, no, that's the wrong model, that doesn't work, it's the wrong part of the world, it's the wrong location, it doesn't work. Let's go back to something that's a little closer to where Jesus lived and the environment in which he functioned. Let's talk about the Jewish rabbis. And this model is called formal and controlled. It's formal and that certain people tell the story. And it's controlled and that, it, that there is oversight that is taken with regard to the story. The rabbis control the story, and it's a very precise way of passing things on orally. And some of the legal tradition that we see among Judaism is rooted in this kind of material. It was an effort to swing the pendulum back on what was going on in the gap. And so like the rabbis, it was said to be very precise, only certain people can tell the story, and you can tell that's very different than the story could go anywhere and everywhere. Scholars looked at that and went, well, the only problem is that isn't quite what we see in the text that we have, because if you read the Gospels at all, you will notice that oftentimes you get the same story, but you get different details between them. So it isn't the kind of precision in its result that this model tends to produce. So although this model on the surface sounds good for the preservation of the story, it actually doesn't fit what we have in the text. So a third model was proposed. This is the one that Bailey proposed and he said, the model that I am proposing is what I see with the Bedouins in the Middle East who I worked with for years. And he described it as informal yet controlled. And here's what he meant. Anyone can tell the story and the story is always told with variation and gist because part of the point of the variation is to keep the story fresh. But the gist of the story is always the same and this is the control part. And if someone, anyone who tells the story tells the story and they stray too far, there are elders in the town and among the group who will correct the story. It's overseen. So Bailey argued, what I see in the New Testament, I recognize as what I have experienced with the Bedouins. That's what I'm seeing happening. And he suggested that model. He claims the New Testament is this third type of informal and controlled. And the reason that's important is because of the gist idea. Because what that means is this. If you spend three and a half years with someone who's going around speaking on a regular basis and you're with them much or all of the time, you're gonna know what they believe. And you're not gonna get that part wrong. And another gap that we have to pay attention to is the gap in people's perceptions of who Jesus is. On the one hand, We have a lot of people who say, Jesus is a religious great. If we built a hall of fame, we'd put him in it. He's one of a very few group of very, very special people. And we'd gather a whole series of names around him. And he's a religious great. That's who Jesus is. That's one side of the gap. And the other side of the gap is, no, Jesus is a completely unique figure in the history of the world. That's a big gap. So you got to mind that gap too. And this story of the Gospels is making the case that as great as a lot of people are in the Bible, people like Moses and David and John the Baptist and Elijah and Isaiah, Jesus is in a completely different category than those guys. So let's think about that some more. So I want to go from morality there's a way to pass this material on. What I'm saying is there's a way to pass this material on over time so that it is remembered and the core of that story is certainly remembered well. It's an important idea. But the question is what gets passed on? That brings us to memory. We'll talk about memory for a second. The name you see here is Robert MacIver. He is an Australian And he has written a book that gathers together all the psychological studies on memory that have been done uh, in, in just generically studying memory, having nothing to do necessarily at all with theology. And he applied those studies to the work of the Gospels. And to have you think about memory, I also want to tell you a story. Several years ago, I was asked To respond to John Dominic Crossan, a presentation that John Dominic Crossan made on Jesus. Now, you don't know who that name is, probably, but he was the co chair of a thing called the Jesus Seminar. They examined the words of Jesus and they were really cool about it. They voted with beads, okay, because these guys were all hippies at one point, okay? And so, so red bead meant Jesus said exactly that. A pink, a pink bead said Jesus said something pretty close to that. A gray bead meant that um, that's not Jesus's words. It probably comes to the evangelists, but it may go back to something that Jesus said. And a black bead meant that didn't have anything to do with what Jesus said. And they argued generically, generally speaking, when you put everything together, about 50% of what we see in the New Testament is black. It doesn't go back to Jesus at all. Okay, so they're arguing there's a lot of stuff happening in the gap. And so he got up and gave this presentation on memory. And this is important because there's another phenomena going on in the oral world that's worth remembering, and it's this. Why did it take so long for the early church to write a gospel? You know, why didn't, you know, why didn't some of the guys who were disciples at the very beginning say, you know what, this story's so great, we're just going to write it out and tell it right at the beginning? Why do you wait 30 to 60 years? The answer is really simple. You wait 30 to 60 years because as long as you have the living voices of the people who experienced what Jesus did and said, that's going to be the testimony you're interested in. You don't write it down until you start to lose those witnesses. And so that took 30 to 60 years. If you're familiar at all with how historians have studied the Holocaust, you will recognize what I'm saying. Because in the 90s and in the aughts, scholars began to do a lot of recording of Holocaust survivors because it dawned on them, because they're brilliant, that people die. And those voices aren't gonna be around forever. And so if they're not gonna be around forever, then maybe we ought to record what they're gonna say so we can keep track of their testimony after they're dead. It's actually what the the second century church called the gospels before they kind of acquired the name gospel, apostolic memoirs. Memories of of the apostles about Jesus. And so memory is a very important deal. Well, here's the argument that Crossan made at a presentation at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. Okay, and by the way, brisket is fabulous. Okay, absolutely. You come to Texas, okay, you hit DFW, you apologize for the experience of the airport, and then you go directly to barbecue. All right, that's how to come to Texas. Anyway. So he was giving this presentation at SMU and he made this argument and and he alluded to an experiment tied to the Challenger disaster. Now, this is a pretty young audience. How many of you were alive in the middle of the 1980s? About half of you. This is when I get nervous, okay? Because I'm talking about something I experienced in my life. To you, I'm talking about history, okay? (laughs) So, so back in the time of the space shuttle, um, there was such a thing, okay? Long, long time ago in a place not so far away, okay? All right, there was the space shuttle program. And at one particular point, someone got the brilliant idea of, let's get a science teacher from the schools to teach a class on science from space. And they had this national competition. And a woman named Christy McAuliffe was selected to be that average person slash astronaut. Okay, because astronauts aren't normal otherwise. Okay. And so, so they picked her out. And, of course, what happened was they had the launch. And, of course, the shuttle tragically exploded. It was a traumatic moment for the space program. It was one of those traumatic moments and dramatic moments historically that if you were alive at the time, you will not forget where you were when you were either watching it or when it happened. And so Crossan came along years later and he said, you know, they did an experiment on memory in association with the Challenger disaster at Emory University in Atlanta. And here's how it went. They got freshmen At Emory, right after it happened, they asked them two questions. Where were you when the Challenger disaster happened, and how did you hear about it? Basically, were the two questions. And they recorded the information. And then three years later, on the premise that these freshmen were now seniors and were going to be leaving the school soon, probably a bad premise. Don't think about that too hard, okay? Um, They repeated the questions and recorded the answers. Three-year gap and they compared the answers for each person of what they said right after the event with what happened three years later in their answers. In about 50% of the cases, the answers were different. So they went back to the people for whom there was a difference and said, we've asked you this, as you know, we've asked you this question twice and you've given us two sets of answers. And we have compared your answers, and they don't tell them which answer came when, and they put the two answers in front of them, which of them is what you remember? And the majority of people who had different answers picked the answer they most recently gave as opposed to the answer they gave right after the event. And so Crossan went, see, memory leaks. You don't remember things down the road in the way that you did at the time and things change between point A and point B. And so I was supposed to respond to this. And uh, this wasn't one of those symposia where you got the paper ahead of time. So I was hearing it for the first time. And I got up and I said, it's very, very interesting to think through this aspect of that experiment. What stake did those Emory students have in the fact that a space shuttle is going up into space? Nothing. Their sole emotional attachment was their sense of patriotism and their curiosity about the space program. That was it. And so I posited, what if you ran that experiment with people who worked at NASA? who Astronauts who would go up in a space shuttle or people who were responsible for making sure those astronauts went up in that space shuttle and were safe. Someone who had a stake in what was taking place. I submitted that I thought the memory and the care of the memory because of the personal investment would be deeper and better than this random experiment just picking people, you know, somewhere in the country. And since that study, studies like that have been done, and it does show memory improves. It's not perfect, but memory improves. There are also some other points about memory that are worth pointing out. McIver, in all the studies that he did, said that what tends to happen to memory is after about five years, if something has been stored in your cash, okay? We're not talking about money, okay? But we're talking about what you remember, all right? that after about five years, that memory freezes. So the way you remember it after five years is generally gonna be the way you remember it after 20. If it's made an impression in you to stay with you for five, it's gonna keep that impression with you for 20, okay? But they didn't think about dementia, okay? So that's generally the way it works. And, and, so, and, and the other point that McIver made is, over that five years, this is interesting, The gist is maintained. That's like the point that Bailey was making about orality. And then, in thinking about this more, I thought, well, there's some other things to be aware of. In the early church, when we're talking about stories of Jesus, it isn't a case where there's an event And then 30 years down the road, someone sits down and says, well, I'm gonna write about that event. Or 60 years down the road, someone says, I'm gonna write about that event. No, because what's happened during the period of the gap is, is that the stories about Jesus that were passed on orally were told again and again and again and again and again, they were repeated stories. You remembered them and you shared them orally in the church and they were passed on and there were people with oversight over it, the apostles when Judas was replaced after he hung himself, the requirement was this has to be a person who was with us from the very beginning, which is a nice way of saying they really have to know what's going on. They have to really know Jesus. And so these stories get repeated over time or think of it this way. Not only is it repeated over time, but it isn't the case that you're relying on the memory of just one person. You're relying on the memory of a whole series of people who saw, interacted with Jesus on a regular basis. And that apostolic group is overseeing at least what gets done in the major churches that are circulating the tradition. So you're not dealing with an individual isolated case. You're not dealing with a case of memory where you remember something and then 30 years later, you come back to it. It's being repeated on a regular basis. And there are many people who are sitting over it as it's being passed on, at least what's circulating officially in the church. So there's a difference between corporate memory and individual memory. That's the point. Now it gets even more fun than this. Because I began to think about this and say, where are there examples of orality in our own lives? Okay, because there aren't many such moments. You have to dig a little bit to get there. This is why I have my hairline. Okay, So, so where does orality function in our world. And my thoughts jumped to my kids and my grandkids before they went to school. Kids and grandkids live in a world of orality before they learn to read and write. Okay? What they retain and what they remember is what they retain and what they remember. They don't write it down. You know, they don't read. So, you know, what they retain is what they've gotten. And... My thoughts immediately jump to something that parents do with young kids or grandparents do with young kids. And that's the story that you read to them at night before they go to bed, which is actually a very important ritual because the commitment that the parent has is to settle the child down enough so that they actually will go to sleep. Okay, It's almost like a mission impossible. Okay? And you do it every 24 hours, and you want to do it well enough that you do it only once every 24 hours. All right? So, when, I was, when, I, when we had our kids and our grandkids, we used to read them bedtime stories when, when they were with us. And the particular stories that we read were in rhyme. It came from books that were produced by a Lutheran publisher, and they were really cool. And, of course, our house is like a lot of houses. You let the kid pick which story they want to have read at night. And what you learn very quickly is, is that kids have their favorite stories. And so you ask them to choose and they choose their favorite story. And this is happening night after night. I mean, this is, you know, 24 hours every day, seven days a week, 52 weeks out of the year, 365. It's not an exciting assignment to read the same story, 6,455 times. (laughs) And so, I would read this stuff to my two daughters and son or to my grandkids. And you might not be able to tell, but there's a little bit of a mischievous streak in me. You know, because this, this is not the most exciting assignment to do day after, day after day after day after day after day after day after day. You get it. So every now and again, I would change the rhyme. And when I would change the rhyme, an interesting human phenomenon would kick in in my kids. As they would say to me, this is the way my grandkids would say it, that's not how it goes, Opa. And by the way, that's how they say it. They didn't say, you know, Opa, that's really not the way it goes. That isn't how they said it to me. That's not how it goes, Opa. Okay. Now, the reason I was doing this I was seeing they were tracking with me. And what I found out in the reaction is they're tracking with me. And then not only did they say, that's not how it goes, Opa, but then they would correct me and tell me how the rhyme is supposed to go. Don't mess it up, Opa, don't mess with my story. That's orality at work. Another example, the same kind of thing is when you talk about people after they've passed away and people gather together and they're remembering what it is that they remember about a person. Most of that stuff isn't written down. I've never been to that kind of a movie. Say, hey, let me pull out the book on this person and let's read what they did in their life. No, they share the stories of their experience, which cover years in many cases, if you're close to someone. And if you're in a room with a lot of people who know people well, a story will trigger a reaction and another reaction and another angle on the story and that kind of thing. That's orality at work. Or let me give you another example. How many of you learned the words to Amazing Grace this way? Let's assume you're in this church and Ben gets up and says, you know, next week is part of our hymn material. We're going to sing Amazing Grace. Now, I'm trying to imagine how Amazing Grace would be sung by the band that we just heard. I'll let you worry about that later, okay? But, but you're singing Amazing, and you go, okay, we're singing Amazing Grace. So I'm going to go home and I'm going to learn the four verses of Amazing Grace and memorize it so that when we sing it, Okay, I'll know the words and I can really get into the worship. No one learns hymns that way and the words to hymns. You learn the words to the hymns because they get sung again and again and again and again. And you have an attachment to the words that you like. And so all of a sudden over time you absorb that story. That's orality at work. So what I'm saying to you is, is that there are moments in our own lives where we live in an oral world and we have an understanding and experience of how orality works. Now, I wanna deal a little bit with these differences and have a little fun, okay? Because it is true that if you put the stories of the gospels next to one another, there is this variation in gist. There's no doubt about that. And we have some examples of it. The most interesting example is the story that is told of Saul, of Jesus appearing to Saul and basically turning him from a persecutor of the church into a believer, into a Christ follower. And that story is told three times in Acts. It's in Acts 9, in Acts 22, and in Acts 26. And what's interesting about that story is this is coming from the same author. So we get to see how a person handling the responsibility of retelling the story three times handles it. And what's interesting is when he retells the story, each time there is gist and variation. The core of the story is very similar. Jesus appeared to Uh, Paul to Saul and said you know Saul Saul why are you persecuting me he calls him into mission etc that story that story is consistent in all three versions in the first version there's a major character named Ananias to whom Saul goes to find out what the call to mission is going to be the third time the story is told Ananias is nowhere to be found so what's going on there well the variations in the way people tell stories That variation exists, and the reason you get variations in the Gospels is because of the input of different people, they see different things. Now, explain this. I want to again come into our world, and I want to talk about guy and gal telling. Okay? And so I'm going to give you a glimpse into my marriage. Okay? All right? If I ask my wife, Honey, do I need to be at dinner tonight in the morning? She will start with my schedule at 6 o'clock in the morning and walk me through my day to lay out the rationale why my attendance either is or is not required at dinner. Okay? I'll be honest with you. It drives me crazy. All right? Because when I ask the question, all I want to know is at 6 o'clock tonight, do I need to be at this table or not? Please give me a yes or a no. All right? And I get all this elaboration that I don't need to cope with, okay? But because I'm a Christian and a good husband, I sit and listen and take it, okay? After 43 years, I have gray hair. So, so if, I ask, if you ask her that question, she's going to elaborate on it. If you ask me the same question, if my wife came to me and said, honey, do I need to be at dinner tonight? My first answer would be, sure, because you got to cook the meal, Okay, but the second thing I would say is this. I would She would get a very short answer. It's gonna be a yes or a no, okay? And I don't elaborate unless there's a follow-up, okay? So it's just different. People are different. Now, there's a, this is not a gender thing, okay? I don't wanna leave the impression this is a gender thing because I have a colleague, Hall Harris, who's married to a German, okay? And if you ask Ursula... If, or if Hall asks Ursula if he has to be at dinner at six o'clock, he's going to get one of two answers. Yeah or nine. Okay. She's like me. But if you ask Hall, who I've nicknamed Dr. Google, because he knows everything. Okay. If you ask Hall whether Ursula has to be at dinner at six o'clock, he will start with the history of meals and hospitality in the Greco-Roman world. (laughs) Okay, and walk you through the history until he answers a question. He's what I call a footnote answerer, okay? He gives you not just the answer to the question, but all the background to it. People are just different in what they retain, in what they value is important, in what they pass on. That contributes to the variations that we see. But the gist is always the same. So what I'm saying to you is this. There is a process of overseeing orality that minds the gap and that minds the gap in such a way that what you have at the end is very connected to what you started with. You've got a gist with variation. And I've also suggested that the way in which this material was passed on, the corporate nature of it, the repetitive nature of it, et cetera, means that it would be retained in a fairly faithful version, a faithful enough version to be able to trust what you're getting. You might talk about some of the details, but the core things would get right. They would certainly know the difference. Did Jesus proclaim himself to be just a religious great and a teacher of wisdom? Or did Jesus say he was at the center of God's program as the Messiah and maybe even talking about being the son of God? They would certainly know that and get that right and pass that on, and that's the only thing that matters in the end, in many ways. Now, normally I would say I'm done, but I'm not, because I wanna deal with the gap in another way. I wanna talk about the way this gap works if you look at the core theology of Christianity. And to do that, I wanna come back to the Apostle Paul, who at one point was the persecutor, Saul. And I want to think about what Saul's presence does to this gap that we're talking about. So, 30 to 60 years, Paul was writing his letters starting in 49 about the core theology that the gospels represent. That takes us back to around 20 20 years or so within the that shrinks the gap. But it's even better than that. Because Saul writes about an experience that he had within 18 months to two years of the events, his own conversion. Writes about it in Galatians. So all of a sudden this gap, which looks like it's huge in terms of the core theology of what the church teaches and what Jesus is about, has shrunk down to a couple of years on the basis of Saul's experience. But it's even better than that. Because for Saul to process what happened when Jesus appeared to him, he has to have heard the message of the apostles that he was rejecting in order to do that. Because when Jesus appeared to him, the first thought that probably ran through his mind is, or at least one of them was, you know that stuff those guys were saying? That must be true. Whoa, I've been persecuting people thinking that what they had was wrong and they were right. That takes you before the event. And in fact, Saul is in Jerusalem persecuting the church which means he's in all the buzz that's happening. Okay, in first century Jerusalem. He's aware of what Fox News is saying and what CNN is saying about what happened in Jerusalem, okay? And if you understand that world, you understand you're getting two different stories. Same reality, two different stories. And he's aware of all that. And he's on one side of that equation at one point and he flips in the midst of that. And he's in the midst of everything that's going, all the buzz that's happening from the pro-Jesus guys and from the anti-Jesus guys. He's on top of all that. He knows what's going on. That takes you right back to the events themselves. And what I am saying to you is that when it comes to the core ideas of Christianity, even though it looks like you have a gap, you actually don't. So what does that mean? Well, if you're going to mind the gap of the story, then you need to mind the gap in the story. And remember I told you that the gap is that some people think that Jesus is a religious great of some type. You know, the interesting thing about about the Jewish reaction to Jesus, the official Jewish reaction to Jesus was they did not deny that he did unusual stuff. They accused him of being a sorcerer and a magician. Or in the New Testament text, they accuse him of exercising his power by the power of Beelzebub, which is another name for Satan. But here's what that concedes. Jesus is doing something that takes transcendent power in order for those things to happen. He is not, they are not saying, this is important, they are not saying what people often say today, that that just thing that just happened didn't happen. They are coming up with an alternate explanation for explaining what is happening. And so this gap in the story, is Jesus just a good guy or maybe he's a very bad guy? Or is he the one who claims to be at the center of God's program and the son of God? That's the gap that matters. Saul, Paul, is on top of that gap. And there is no gap. And more importantly, the empty tomb is God's vote in that dispute. In fact, when Jesus was before the Jewish leadership and they were asking him, Are you the Messiah, the Christ? He said, I am and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of God coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, if you translate that, this is a whole nother message, but if you were to translate that into good theological language, this is what he's saying. You may have me on trial here and you can do to me whatever you want. But one day God is going to vindicate me and one day I will be your judge and the tables will be reversed. So watch what you're going to do. And if you have any doubt about that, one day I'm going to disappear and God is going to seat me at his right hand. I'm going to sit with God in heaven. It's a pretty humble claim. And you can write me at (laughs) www.righthandofgod.com. And so when the Jewish leadership heard that, they tore their clothes. They said, that's blasphemy. No one can claim to share the presence and honor and glory of God. No one can do that. And so in that room, we had a clash between a claim that some saw as blasphemy and the claim that Jesus made that God was gonna exalt him. And it's a dispute, up for discussion. And then three days later, the tomb went empty. And God walked into a voting booth and checked a box. And the box that he checked was exaltation. The reason Jesus sits at the right hand of God is because God gave him that seat. That's 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 the gap we all have to mind. Because if that's true, it says something about who we are as creatures, who God is as creator, what his revelation means about what he says about the human condition, about our need for what it is that he offers, which he offers to us freely by grace because Jesus Christ takes on the debt that we have, you know, Esther walked in here and said, you know, there was a time when I didn't have a penny. And I was in an apartment I imagine she would have been excited had God walked up to her and said, I'm gonna pay your rent for the rest of your life. She'd have been grateful to that God. She would have told her neighbors about that God. And that's why the church calls the message of Jesus Christ good news. It's good news because God pays for us a debt we can never pay for ourselves out of his love and concern to reconnect with us, but he will only do it if we turn our backs from being turned against him, towards him and receive what he offers. Mind the gap. Let's pray. If you were encouraged by today's talk and believe it would be uplifting to others, then be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church podcast.